This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is the word of the Lord. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the blessings of the gospel. And what we mean by that is that we need to be reminded through and through, time to time, the history of the church reminded its people of all the blessings that we receive as you come into faith, as you come to salvation, because we forget. It's very easy to forget. And John chapter 2, I'm going to jump right into this. John chapter 2, there are two episodes in this chapter. The first episode, you see a wedding. We didn't read that portion, but there is a wedding, and you see Jesus' first miracle. But uh, the second incident, the second uh, part of the passage is uh, the passage that we read today, Jesus coming in and clearing the temple, this incident at the temple. So you start out with a wedding, and you have this incident at the temple. Completely different episodes, at least on the surface. You see these two scenes seem completely, utterly different. And I'll give you some examples why. Um, In the wedding, Jesus was invited. He was invited to the wedding. But he intruded into the temple. The wedding was a private venue for a small subset of people to see. But this incident at the temple was done in public, wide view. At the wedding, Jesus made the party. But at this incident at the temple, Jesus dispersed the party. At the wedding, Jesus adds to the celebration. He contributes to the celebration. Here, he's taking away from the gathering. He's taking away from the, from the people who've gathered. At the wedding, he brings comfort. At the incident at the temple, he brings confusion. At the wedding, he brings joy. There's a tremendous amount of joy, an augmentation of joy because of what he does. But at the temple, there's anger. There's disturbance. They're ready to kill him. See, these two scenes are completely different on the surface. But both, the, both scenes show us several things. One, we learn more about his character. We learn basically more about who he is, his character his mission, his purpose, what he brings. And John, the author of this gospel, intentionally connects these two passages. Because, and you would understand what I mean when I say this because of the chronology of when these two things, these two episodes took place. And what he's trying to tell us is this. These two passages are connected. These two passages show us, they both show us who Jesus is. And what it's teaching us is this. If Jesus comes into your life, on one hand, he's going to fill your table like a feast. 
He's going to bring joy. He's going to bring warmth. He's going to bring intimacy. He's going to bring you comfort. But in other cases, he's going to flip that table over. And he's going to create disruption. He's going to create discord. He's going to create disturbance. And, and it's basically a simple fact of experience. How you experience Jesus at a certain stage in your life. And it's very, very interesting. These two, these two uh, things, these two episodes, they're not two things that Jesus does. They're not different things that he does in your life. They're utterly connected. They're just different ways of doing the same thing. You can't have a feast, what Jesus is saying. You can't have a feast. You can't have the warmth. You can't have the comfort and the joy and the closeness and the intimacy without sometimes your tables being flipped over and everything falling in disarray. You can't have that. You need both. And if you can see that, only if you can see that, then you're really going to start to understand who he is then you can only start to get him. John is saying, and this is the reason why he's showing us these two episodes, John is teaching us this. We need Jesus, not only as our Savior, but as our King. We need Jesus, not only just as lover, but as our Lord. We need to see him as Savior and King. We need to see him as lover and Lord. In other words, you have to love him or hate him, because if you look at the episodes, they're just so radical. It's what he's saying, what he's claiming, what he's saying about himself. You have to love him or hate him. You can't be in the middle. You can't just dismiss him. You have to embrace him or reject him. You can't just say, oh, he's a good teacher. You have to cling to him or you have to crucify him. What you can't just say is, he's okay. He was a good person. And only if you see him as lover and Lord, as Savior and King, it's the only way you're going to be changed. It's the only way you're going to find renewal. It's the only way you're going to have assurance in life. It's the only way that you can find access, cosmic access. This passage, it follows the entire pattern of John's gospel. Jesus, usually uh, John, as he delineates and defines who Jesus is, he shows us through a series of teachings and through a series of miracles. And in this book, you'll see that, you know, with every miracle, there's a teaching that explains the miracle. With With every teaching, there's a teaching that explains the teaching. And so you see that throughout the book of John, this kind of kicks everything off because you see this incident at the temple and then a teaching that follows the incident. And you see that his claims are so radical. Verses 18 to 21, what he says about himself is so transcendent, so cosmic, so radical. No one does anything right away. They don't just react. They kind of stop. They take a step back. Not, not the Jews, not the disciples. They kind of all just take it in. You know, verse 22, we didn't read it. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, much, much later, after he rose from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, what they're saying is that, you know, they took it all in. The Jews who were against him, the disciples who were for him, they took it all in, everything that he had to say, and uh, that's what we need to do today. We need to take everything that he said. We need to take it in, absorb it. And you're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. You're going to cling to him or you're going to crucify him. Three lessons. Blessings in the gospel in this text. Three lessons. We're going to find peace. You're going to find access. You're going to find freedom. Peace, access, freedom. Very, very simple. First thing, peace. 
verses 15 to 22. It's virtually the, uh, 21, the, fir- the whole of this text really pretty much. If you look at the earlier part of this text, which we did not read, Mary is at a wedding. That's Jesus' mother. Mary is at a wedding. Jesus and his disciples were there, and they run out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus, and he says, there's no wine. You've got to do something about this. And Jesus says, it's not my time. It's not my time right now. And Mary instinctively responds and he says, do whatever my son, do whatever he tells you to do. She turns to the servants. That's what he says to them. In other words, even though Jesus answers to Mary, he actually answers. He actually responds. He begins by saying, let me tell you who I am. It's not my time. I set the pace here. He explains his authority and, but here in this, in this passage, you, you see similar things here. Jesus comes in and he sees this temple. He enters into the outer portion of the temple, this outer court. And it's where the Gentiles have gathered. If you know anything about the temple, it's structured so that there's an outer court, an inner court, and a most holy place. This cube that's at the center, the centerpiece of the temple where God resides. And here Jesus enters in and he hears the noise and he sees, the, he smells the smell, the stench. There's animals and there's money being ch- changing hands. And there's just a ruckus. And he makes this small whip uh, out of, of, of cords. He makes this whip. It's not very, very daunting. Jesus is one man. He's in this large temple where it's an international fiesta, a fiesta, a festivities that are taking place. Tremendous festivities taking place. He walks in, and what does he do? He just drives everybody out. That's what he is. He's flipping over tables, and he's driving every, everybody out. If you've ever gone to any type of religious organization, walked into its community and started doing that, what would happen? People would tackle you immediately, escort you out. You ever been to Citizens Bank Park? People, once in a while, you know, I'm... I've lived in Boston for 11 years. Every so often, you see a guy, you know, jump out onto the field, run towards, and they want to slide into second base, you know, or something like that. What happens? They don't get there. They don't even make it because the security will tackle him, you know, drag him away. Here's one man, small whip, flipping over tables, ruining the business, driving everybody out. Why didn't they stop him? They all ran. Actually, it says everybody was dispersed. They all left. He doesn't hurt a single person. They could have stopped him, but they didn't. They didn't stop him. Why? They all ran out. And it's because they instinctively knew that Jesus was acting out of authority. In verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They ask him. You know, they don't ask him, Jesus, why did you do that? They don't ask him for an explanation. They asked him, what authority do you have? What right do you have to do what you just did? They all dispersed. They instinctively knew that this man had authority, and they asked him, what authority do you have? He casts them out, and then he explains to them why he casts them out. He overturns our tables in our lives. A lot of times, we, you know how we operate? We say, you know, what right do you have to do the things that you're doing in my life? You're overturning my tables. You're, you're moving furniture around, and I don't like it. I demand an explanation. I want to know exactly why, and then I'll trust you. That's pretty much how we operate. We want to know why before he, you know, before you do anything in my life, I want you to explain to me what you're going to do and why, then I'll trust you. But that's not how Jesus operates. He says, on my time, for my purpose, I will flip over tables or I'll bring you into a feast. And then I'll explain to you why. And when we start to trust, you know, first we realize that 
you know, the, the baseline, we have to understand that there is a reason for why he's flipping over our tables. Once we start to understand that, once we start to trust, you know, and what is trusting? What we're saying is, no matter what, no matter where, no matter what you're doing in my life, no matter what you do, no matter, no matter where you take me, no matter how, how beat up I feel in this process, I'm going to trust you. It's only then that you experience peace. You have to trust and then you get peace. You have to commit and then you experience peace. You know, a lot of times we want power. We want the, we want the authority. We say, you know, I, I want to make the call. I want power. But you know what you're doing? You're looking in the face of ultimate power and you're saying, I don't trust you. I want to make the call. You're looking in the face of ultimate authority and you're saying, I don't really trust you. I want to make the call. And if you do that, you're not going to have peace. You're not going to have peace. You're constantly going to be anxious. A lot of us here, I bet you all of us here, in some way, shape, or form, are living in anxiety, constant anxiety. You know why? You know why there's anxiety? It's because you want control. You're looking at the face of ultimate power. How can you sit in a church and not acknowledge that there's ultimate power present? But you know what we do? We look in the face of ultimate power, ultimate authority, and you say, I want the authority to make the decisions in my life. And we live, that's why we have anxiety. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. He says, until you come to grips with who I am. Actually, that's the reason why he's flipping over the tables in our lives. Until you come to grips with who I am. That's the only way. That's the way the warmth and the comfort is going to enter in. You know, if you don't do that, there's going to be warmth. You're going to experience the feelings once in a while. You're going to experience warmth. You're going to experience the goodness. Once in a while, you're going to feel empowered or comforted. And it's going to feel good for a little while, but it's never going to change you. That warmth, that kind of comfort will never change you. It will never shape your life. You will never be able to live your life on the basis of that kind of warmth. It's not going to renew you, and it's not going to last. But if you see Jesus as Savior and Lord, as lover and king, that warmth, that comfort is going to last. And it's so critical for us to obey God just because of who he is, not because you agree, just because, the simple truth of who he is. You know, a um, simple illustration um, for parents here, you know, you get to a, your children get to a certain age and they start to talk back to you. You know, um, it's very easy for them to trust when they're very, very uh, young, but when they get to a certain age where they're able to communicate and dialogue, their brains start to work, and they start to question you. They start to challenge you. It's natural. It's going to happen. And simple, you know, simple incident or, you know, or episode, you know, you tell your children to go bed, get in bed. It's 8 o'clock. It's time to go to bed. Your usual routine is you put them down, you know, you read them a story, you know, you turn off the light, you kiss them, you hug them, and, you, you, and they go to sleep. But they say, you know, I don't want to go to sleep. I'm not tired. And you go back and forth and say, you know, there's going to be, every parent goes through this. At some point in their lives, they're going to say, you know, I want you to explain to me, you know, why you want me to do these things. Why do I have to do these chores? Why do I have to go to bed at this hour? Why can't I do this? Later on, why can't I go out? Why can't, I'm 15 years old. Why can't I go down to the shore for the weekend with my friends? You know, give me a good explanation as to why, then I'll submit. But you see, if your kids are doing that, and you, what's your answer to that? You know, if you fall into the trap and try to answer them, you know, number one, you know that if it's not good enough of a reason, they're not going to submit to you, right? Um, the best answer is, it's because I'm your parent. I have authority. I have the power. You submit because of who I am. 
you wouldn't want them to submit for any other reason. You know why? Because if they submit because you have good reasons, it means that they have a good brain, they've processed it, they're agreeing with themselves. They're not agreeing with you. They're not buying into you. They submit because of who you are. And in the same way, it's so critical for us to obey. So critical for us just because of who he is, not because we agree. If you do that, then there's the comfort. Then you get the peace. The peace comes in submission. Trust the Lord. Don't just trust in him. Trust him. Then you'll have peace. The second thing here is you get access. They ask Jesus, what authority do you have to do all the things that you did? And Jesus responds, it's not very cryptic, but what he says is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. I will raise it up again. And the text here says, the temple that he had spoken of was his body. He's talking about his body. In other words, they're asking, what allows you to say that you own this place? You're walking around, you're you're, you're treating it like it really is your place. And Jesus responds, he says, own it. Own this place? I am this place. I am the temple. What's the temple? What is the temple? I'll tell you what it used to mean. The temple was this place where heaven and earth come together. They meet. It's that highest place where heaven and earth collide. It's where the eternal meets with the temporal. It's where, um, it's where the divine meets with the mortal, right? It's where the supernatural and the natural come and get connected, And all the ancients knew that there was a transcendence, that there was absolute power that resided among them, and that at the same time there was a gap, and that gap somehow needed to be bridged. Somehow that gap needed to be bridged, and that's why they had priests. Every civilization, the ancients knew and understood that there was a gap between us and the divine, and number one, there was such a thing as a divine, and there was a gap between us and the divine, and it had to be bridged, and that's why they had priests. Now, Today, things are changing, right? Things have changed in many ways. The temples today are known to be these obscure, obsolete old buildings. And why? It's because in the 1800s, we had this concept of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment era. You had Napoleon, you had Voltaire, you, you know, and all, you know, Rousseau, and all these great philosophers and writers who basically tried to demystify the truths of the church. They demystified the spiritual. They demystified that there was anything the divine. And they basically said that everything that can, everything has to be proven by some sort of natural cause. In other words, there's no true mystery. There's no such thing as mystery. There's no such thing as the sublime. There's no such thing as the divine. There's no such thing as anything spiritual. Everything that you experience has to be explainable by some sort of natural consequence. But today, those things are also changing. We're experiencing a tremendous upsurge again in spiritual searching in our world today. Wars are being fought over faith today around the world. But even in this country, we're starting to see a tremendous upsurge. People are starting to become spiritually aware again. Why? Why is that? It's because that old ancient, you know, the old enlightenment concept, the philosophy, it's failing us. It's corroding and it's falling apart. It's on the decline. And here's the reason why. Think about it this way. If at the bottom of everything, if at the bottom of everything in our lives, there's supposed to be an underlying cause, then how do you explain racism? Simple thing. How do you explain racism? How do you explain poverty? You're telling me that there's a natural reason for why some people are richer than other people? And that's fair? 
that there's something in our science, in our biology, in our DNA that causes uh, you know, one race to overpower another. Science doesn't get to the bottom of everything. That's one thing we understand. It doesn't get to the bottom of poverty. It doesn't get at the bottom of disease or war at its base nature, the sufferings that come from it. So there are things that actually go beyond natural causes. We all understand that. Things that go beyond science. And when you go beyond science, you enter into philosophy. But we understand that there are things that go beyond philosophy. And people are starting to say that the main problem that we experience today is that we, for centuries, have been disconnected from a deeper reality, a spiritual truth. And uh, in other words, what we're saying is that we need a temple. We need a temple. We need a, we need a place where we can connect with God. These people are asking Jesus, <clears throat> how can you act like you own it? And Jesus responds, I am the temple. I am that place that bridges that gap between God and man, between heaven and earth, between everything that is divine and everything that is mortal. I am that deeper reality that you're looking for. It's a remarkable statement. In fact, they're so amazed by what he said. You know, it, you know what set Jesus off? He comes in to the temple. What made him so angry? He saw the money changers. He saw the animals. He heard the noise, the disturbance, the distraction. And, you know, and he basically what he was doing was he was chasing away, he was stripping away, he was throwing out this old sacrifice system that existed in the temple. People came from all over the world. There was only one temple. People came from all over the world to this temple. And obviously if you're coming from as far as Spain and you're going to go to the temple, you know, you're not going to carry a pet with you because it's going to die along the way. So you had to have some sort of medium, you know, to be able to buy in this unblemished animal that you're going to sacrifice, give to the priest to sacrifice. So you went to the temple and at a convenience for the sake of the Gentiles, they established a, a place. It was a good thing. They established this place where you can exchange, you know, you needed exchanging of money because if you're from Spain, you had different currencies. So you needed money changers. And you need to use the money once you've exchanged it to buy these animals to give to the priests to sacrifice. Now, here these priests are on the outside of the courts and they're making these sacrifices. There's all this noise. There's this ruckus. There's negotiating and haggling. Animals are running around. There's this smell, tremendous stench. And right there, the priest, in all the disturbance, in all the distraction, he's just doing this makeshift sacrifice. There's this line. He's just sacrificing an animal. Okay, you can go. Sacrificing it. And, and, and the thing is, Jesus enters in at that moment. And what does he see? What does he see? He sees the disturbance and the noise and the distraction. And it basically, it's this mechanical faith. And that's what he says, I'm going to throw this out. I'm going to overturn all of this. Why? Because he's saying, I am the temple. And these people were utterly shocked. They, complete, they were shocked by this. They were disturbed by this. Why? Because they understood the concept of the temple. They understood what that meant. The history behind the temple the temple for them, for the Jews, the temple was a place of shalom. It was a place of peace. You came and made a pilgrimage to this place because there and only there you knew in this inner place, this inner sanctuary where no man could enter but one person one time a year is the place of ultimate peace and shalom. The shalom peace was this holistic peace. You remember Jerry Maguire? Jerry Maguire is talking to his one client you know, this football player. And he talks about this notion of the quan. 
He says it's, it's money, it's family, it's career, it's all these things. And, and, and when all these things are in harmony, you have, what he's talking about is shalom. Complete harmony in all facets of your life. That's what the temple was for these people. That's what the Holy of Holies was, this inner sanctuary where one priest, the high priest, entered in once a year because that is where God dwelled. And Jesus here, he's seeing this, and outside in the outer courts where Gentiles couldn't even come in to really worship, there was this distraction. The people knew that the temple was a place of peace because God's presence was there, but they also knew that it had to be a place of sacrifice because of the gap. In order to bridge the gap, there had to be a sacrifice. And you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you saw this. The Garden of Eden, in reality, was the original temple. It was a place of peace. It was a place where God dwelled. And Adam then becomes the first original high priest. It was the sanctuary of God. The presence of God was there. But, you know, at one point in time, human beings decided uh, to center their lives on something other than God. We decided to pursue something other than God, other than his presence. And so we lost the sanctuary. We lost his presence. We lost the peace. We lost that holistic sense of shalom. And since that point, you know, Adam and Eve, they were booted. They were driven out of that sanctuary. They were driven out of that place of peace. And they saw at the gate, as they were leaving, at the gate, God placed a cherubim flashing back and forth. It means that he was going all over the place. And what did he have in his hand? A sword, a flaming sword. In other words, in order to get back in, there had to be a sacrifice. Something had to pay the price for you to get back into that peace again. And this sword is flashing back and forth, meaning that you can never enter that place again. It was guarded, it was gated, and it's because we built our lives on other things. We, built, we chose to pursue power. We ignored real power. We chose to pursue other power. We ignored real status. We chose to pursue our own status. We ignored the one relationship, the one intimacy that we needed, and we pursued other relationships as our core. And that's the cause of all wars. That's the cause of all conflicts. That's the cause of all brokenness, all injustices in the world. In other words, turning away from God, tremendous consequences, tremendous brokenness. And we know that at the end of it, it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. Sorry isn't enough. An apology isn't enough. Think about it. If you're the victim of a major crime, some of us here have been victims of major crimes. You know that you've suffered violence. Or, you know, you've been lied to. You've been betrayed. You know, you've suffered enormous hurt. You know that an apology is not enough. Everybody here who's experienced any kind of suffering at the hands of another person understands that an apology is not enough. You know that in some way, shape, or form, you want them and you need them to pay you back. A payment has been exacted. There's been a charge and somebody's got to pay the price. That's what the sword is. The sword is saying you cannot get access until a price is paid. And that sword at the Garden of Eden meant that there was an eternal payment that had to be made, an an eternal justice, because it was an eternal injustice. So an eternal justice An eternal payment has to be made. Somebody has to pay the price to get back into the garden. Who's going to survive that? Who's going to survive the sword? How do we get back in? This temple, there is a cube in the middle of the temple, towards the end. That was the heart. That was the presence of God. There's this thick veil, a curtain that covered that cube. 
to show us that nobody can enter in lest it be opened and access be granted to you. And one person once a year was given that access because God's presence was there. It was a representative, a representation of the garden in its own way, the presence of God, the sanctuary. But it's symbolically represented because the high priest can go in. He didn't go in empty-handed. He, once a year, Yom Kippur, he entered in and he made a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was representative. That blood that was spilt was representative of that payment, meaning that at the base, at the least, there's a way for us to get back in. It's symbolically represented that although we've been booted out and we will never have access to God again, there is a way. And a way has been made. God has made a way for us to get back in. Now the prophets, they prophesied over the course of history that God's glory in that cube will one day cover the world. That was the prophecy. Throughout the prophets, if you read any of the prophecies, and that's what they said. That one day that glory, the Shekinah glory of God, would one day cover all the earth. <sighs> that Shekinah glory would cover all the earth, and, and one day that presence would return. One day the entire world would become that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. It was mouth-watering for the Jews. They're salivating over this. They long to see this. This is why he was, they were mid. This is why they were shocked when Jesus says, I am that. I am that temple. You know, the, the outer courts were for the pagans, the non-believers. You entered in. You got the noise. You got the smell. You heard the money and the sounds, the distractions. Uh, you know, you never were able to rest. And right around that altar is where the priest was performing these sacrifices. So it never felt like anything. It was just mechanical. These people would travel from all over the world to come and perform that one thing. and never felt like anything. You know what a sacrifice should be? Think about it. An animal is paying the price for your sins. You know, if you think about it, think about the sum of just your past week. And to be able to present an animal to a priest and to be able to watch and observe, that is your sin being sacrificed at the altar. You do, you, there's no way you couldn't do that reflectively. You'd sit there and, you know, can you imagine the psychological healing that a lot of these priests needed? All they saw was death, tragedy. It was traumatic death. You know, it's not like the humane ways that we put animals down today. They slaughtered these animals. Blood is running. There were, there were troughs for these blood to run and flow. But these Jews, the relationship, it was mechanical. It wasn't organic. It was not reflective. These pagans, it was not reflective. There was the noise. There was the distractions of our lives. It's much like our relationship with God. Most of our week is distracted. Most of our week, we're not thinking about God, and yet we know that a payment needs to be made, and it results in guilt, and we're suffering, and you know, we bring all that to the table. And the thing is, we, even in our prayers, we're distracted. We're hurting in our prayers, and we're distracted. And, 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 and all these things are happening, and... Where do you get the access? Jesus says, my body is the temple. My personal, physical self houses the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1. It says that Jesus is the, you know, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of God, if his being. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The word glory there is uh, the Greek word kavod. That's the word that's, that's, that's being used there. It's, it's, or at least it's rooted in that word kavod. 
the clothed glory of God. He's saying, I am the temple presence of God. I am immeasurable power. I am ultimate glory. I am true reality. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, we have this ark. In that Holy of Holies, you have the ark. The ark represented, at that point in time, long before the temple, that presence of God, that holy presence of God, the glory, the kavod glory of God. Well, in 1 Samuel, there's this uh, narrative where the ark gets stolen by the enemies, by the enemies of the Jews. And simultaneously as that was taking place, you have this woman who's the, the wife of, uh, the pregnant wife of one of the priests in Israel at the time. And she hears news that the ark was taken away by the enemies of God. The glory of God was literally stripped away, departed from her. And she's so distressed as she enters into labor. It's, it's almost epic, right? She's, she's entering into labor, and, and, and she realizes she's distressed by this news that the glory of God is gone. And so what does she do? She names her son as she dies. She names her son Ikabod. Ikavod. Glory, kavod. Ikavod means no glory. The distress that that created, the glory of the Lord has departed from us. Jesus is saying, I am that glory. But I'm different than other temples. In every other temple, you have to bridge the gap. You have to make the sacrifice. You have to bring the sacrifice. You have to pay the price. In every other temple, you have to pay the price. Jesus, uh, you know, and, and it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you to travel. You've got to do the work. But Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. I'm going to pay the price. I am the priest. I am the altar. I am the lamb. I bridge the gap. I am God on the other side of the bridge paying the price to build the bridge to bring you across to me. That's Jesus. I'm the temple. I'm making all, now that I've arrived, all temples are now officially obsolete. They are obscure. I'm a new temple. I'm the mediation. I'm a whole new way. This is a whole, it's going to blow away, completely blow away your view of what it means to find access to God. The old temple, you do the work. You go the distance. The new temple, Jesus says, I've done the work. I've gone the distance. None of the other founders of any other religion, think about any other religion that's out there. There's no rabbi, there's no prophet, there's no religious leader, no book, no set of teachings that would ever dare to make that kind of claim. Oh, they make lots of claims. You do the work in every one of those claims. You obey the five pillars. You follow uh, the, uh, the, the fivefold path. In every other place, you do the work. But here, you know, they couldn't have said that. You know, no other religious leader would be able to say that. But here, um, Jesus says, I've bridged the gap. The other leaders, the other prophets, other priests, other faiths, you can't bridge the gap. Jesus says, I've bridged the gap. When Jesus was on the cross, as he's suffering, as he's dying, that veil, that curtain that, you know, separates us from the Holy of Holies, it, t- it tears. And the Bible says that it tore from top to bottom. Now, that's unusual. Because um, when you see something tear, you see this big curtain and you want to see it torn, usually you grab it from the bottom and you rip it apart and you see the seams tear from the bottom up. You know Why? Because you're doing the work. When Jesus died on the cross, that holy temple curtain tore from top to bottom. Why? Who's holding the temple curtain? God. 
is ripping that curtain apart. He's lifting the veil. Through his death, the temple became obsolete because now we have access. And God has given us that way. God gave us that access. Jesus would be stricken. On the cross, Jesus would be pierced. You know what that means? That's sword language. That's sword language. Now, in the book of Isaiah, says that he would be cut off from the land of the living. That's sword language. In other words, Jesus came under the sword. He suffered the sword. He was denied access. He died so that we could have access. The sword that would break him would ultimately break as a result. The death that would destroy him would ultimately die as a result. Jesus bridged the gap by paying the price. You know, when you look at the cross, what do you see? Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there, when he's, he's saying, I am the exact radiance of God. I am Kavoth. I am the glory of God. And yet right now, I, who have experienced eternal access, the only, right to ever, the only person who's ever had the right to enter into God's presence, I've got the sword. I receive the sword. And the glory of God has departed from me. The ultimate kavod, glory of God, has become the ikavod, became the ultimate ikavod. Do you see that? The ultimate glory lost the glory. The ultimate presence of God lost the presence of God. Why? So that we could have the presence of God. Jesus lost access to the Father so that we could have access to the Father. Jesus lost the way to the bridge. The bridge was taken away from him. Why? So that we could cross the bridge. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Can you trust that? The gap was bridged for us because it, became, it came in between God and his own son. And if you see that, and if you trust that, that change that takes place in your heart, it's radical. It's not subtle. It's radical. And what, the thing that we gain from that is freedom. And that's my final point, freedom. Very, very quick. Religion says you pay the price. You've got to come to church, attend, plug into a community group, start getting into some ministry and work. That's what you've got to do. And if you view it, if that's your view of church, and if that's your view of your prayer life, and that's your view of community group, and that's your view of ministry and plugging in to get involved, it's mechanical. You have a very mechanical relationship with God. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. He doesn't say, I am the building. Come and live here with me. That's not what he says. You know, he says, I am the vine. You know why? Vines are organic. They grow. He says, you got to plug into me, and I am an organic quality, an organic thing in your life, so that change will no longer be mechanical. Stop living a mechanical life. You know how you live a mechanical life? You know how you know that? It's because you don't feel it. You don't feel it. You're driven by anxiety, you know, and you see the brokenness, and you have no power. That's how you know. Did you live in mechanical life in the Father? And community group is good. In fact, it's one of the cruxes in our church. Coming to church is critical for your spiritual character and for your growth and for renewal and for worship. You can't do those things alone. Prayer is good alone and corporately. Reading scripture is important. It's critical. We have to obey. The thing is, if you're doing that so that you can have access, you will live a broken life filled with anxiety for the rest of your life. That's how you're going to raise your children, and they will, it will perpetuate, they will live in anxiety for the rest of their lives. Do you see that? 
Religion says you pay the price. All of us right now are sitting in one of two temples. One either driven by fear or one driven by grace. Here's how you know if you're driven by fear. If you're sitting in a temple driven by fear, you've got anxiety, you've got insecurity, and there's no power in your life to change. Because the presence of God, you don't see it. There's still a veil. The veil is still there, and you still have to offer sacrifices to get in. And that's why you're doing the work. You feel guilty, and that's why you feel like you have to make things up to the Father. That's not how it works. But if you're driven by grace, number one, the truth of the gospel and that the king has suffered the ultimate price for you, that's going to humble you. There's no single thing that you could do to earn God's favor on your own. That's what you realize. That's why the king had to die. It had to be the king. That's going to humble you. But you know what's going to melt you when you know that it's not like Jesus took direction step by step. Hey, God, what do I do next? That's not why Jesus prayed. Hey, God, can you, what am I going to do tomorrow? What's the plan here? The plan was set forth from the beginning of time, and Jesus gladly walked that journey. When you let that truth melt your life, melt your heart, the change stops being mechanical. It starts becoming organic because you're moved into it. It's going to lead you to trust. You don't need to look for certainty because you've got certainty. You don't need to look for assurance because you've got assurance. You don't need to look to other people for love because you've got love. And all the relationships around you will change too. You know why? Because it's not to serve yourself anymore. You're there to serve them. You know why? Because my cup overflows. The presence of God is there. Do you have that? You can actually submit. You can actually surrender. We suffer sufferings and you say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to trust. I'm going to just trust that you are active and that you love and that you're embracing me. Even though it hurts, you're embracing me. It's the image of a father looking at his hurting child. You don't think, you think you look, right now, in your suffering, you think God is sitting there and saying, well, this, do, you, do you think he's being mechanical? Well, you see, uh, you know, she needs to go through these things, and after a few steps, it's going to get a little bit better, so I can wait, I can wait. You think that's what he's doing? He's suffering. Jesus is pleading for us. That's the father. That's the heart of God. And when you see that, when you let that trust melt you, you can trust You can trust in his authority and that's going to give you peace because you have access and that's going to lead to freedom. Will you be set free? As a body and as individuals, will you let that truth, the truth is not about just our sin. The sin created the gap, but the love that overwhelms the gap. Will you let that trust shape you, that truth shape you? This week, as we enter into our week, friends, will you surrender to the love of the gospel? And let, don't let it mechanically shape you because then you're doing the work. You gotta, you gotta, the moment you, you got to stop yourself, just stop yourself. Let it organically shape you into the vine. Will you do that this week? It's going to build you a new confidence because you have peace, because you have assurance. And that is going to bring you the feast, the joy. It's two sides of the same coin. Will you believe that? Trust that today? Let's pray.